and a firm and marvelous amen as you own those prayers. Matthew chapter 1, please. Finding ourselves in this Lord's Day, the 10th day of Christmas. That's very important to remember. And uh, what is essentially New Year weekend. I'm not quite ready to return to our series in Matthew. But that will not stop us from turning to Matthew nevertheless. Uh, I preached to you on this text at the beginning of our series back in September of 2019. Which seems uh, just like it sounds. (laughs) Like an eternity ago. But uh, no doubt you will remember that sermon in its every minutest detail. Well, uh, maybe not, but uh, if if not, uh, then uh, you're in good company. I couldn't remember it either. I had to pull it up myself and to remind myself that last time we were here at this chapter, we reminded ourselves, we focused, that is, largely on Joseph. Uh, We return to that text today because... Standing as we are on the threshold of 2021, we have a perfect opportunity, again, to reorient ourselves as Christians. To reorient ourselves with some anticipation of the future that stretches out before us, all unknown, unknown but not alone. And I have another uh, more subtle reason for returning to this theme in Matthew chapter 1 today, and that is that it it forms an important inclusio in Matthew to Matthew's gospel. There's a set of brackets on Matthew's gospel, as it were, a theme that marks the beginning and the end. It comes up in Matthew chapter 1. It's going to come up again in the end in Matthew chapter 28 that we will do well to note before we get back into Uh, the series on Matthew in earnest next week, the Lord willing. So Matthew chapter 1, we'll pick up where we, uh, at verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter after we pray. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we pray that he will do a great work now. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 1 beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
We've seen this before. And it has at times been a prominent theme in our studies, the huge emphasis that the Bible lays on the presence of God, on the God who is with us. If you can remember all the way back to the beginnings of the book of Joshua, for example, these words of God will be familiar to you. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I with, was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsaken you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua ends on the same theme. Similarly, Matthew's gospel, I say, makes an inclusio of this truth, starting and ending with the presence of God with us. Here we find it at the, at the beginning with Matthew's quotation of the prophet Isaiah to Jesus' stepfather, Joseph. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew will end his gospel the same way, quoting another prophet. You remember who that prophet is? <laughs> the prophet Jesus, before his ascension into heaven. And behold, I am what? With you. With you. Even to the end of the age. Joshua and Matthew, of course, are not the only places in Scripture that lay this kind of emphasis on the presence of God with us, with his people. In one way or another, we find a great deal of the Bible occupied with this doctrine, this truth, this fact, this wonderful, embracing, assuring, and challenging fact that God himself is with his people, that he is with us always and everywhere, close to us at our right hand. During their pilgrimage through the wilderness, you remember, to the promised land and in, even into the promised land of Canaan and the spying and the fighting and the conquering, God was with them. When Israel pitched camp, that truth that God was with them was dramatically demonstrated. Do you remember how? Israel encamped all around what? The tabernacle, which was the visible demonstration of God's presence with them. Negatively, when Israel had disobeyed and rebelled in the wilderness with the golden calf, God threatened to remove his presence from them. His angel he would send with them, he says, but I will not go lest I consume you along the way. That was, that was disastrous news, wasn't it? Absolutely disastrous. Remember the people broke into mourning. Moses had a virtual meltdown before God in prayer until God finally agreed, my presence will go with you. To which news Moses replied, if your presence will not go with me, then don't, don't, don't bring us up from here at all. 
Later, Israel's darkest days were always the ones in which they essentially drove God's presence away from themselves. Think of the days of Eli, when the Ark of the Covenant was lost in battle to the Philistines. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, the wicked priest and son of Eli, gave birth to a son just as the news of Israel's defeat and the Ark's capture reached her. With her dying breath, she named her newborn son Ichabod which means the glory has departed. To say that the glory had departed was as much as to say that God had departed from them without mentioning God's name. They had lost God's presence. And she understood that. They did. Since they no longer trusted or obeyed him, Yahweh had taken his presence from them. In Elijah's, the, only, the prophet's uh, day, uh, the word of the Lord left Israel and remained out for three years. That too was but another way to say that God had left them alone. Jesus made a similar point concerning the religious leaders of his day, pointing out that God's word did not dwell in them. On the positive side, the Apostle Paul speaks of the word of Christ rich, richly indwelling believers, which is another way to speak of Christ richly dwelling in us. As God dwelt or not with the people, so they enjoyed blessing or cursing, comfort or consternation, protection or vulnerability. That's why John 1.14 is so heartening for us, particularly this time of year and this season. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just another way of expressing what Matthew captures here in his interpretation of the angel's news to Joseph with the words of the prophet, Emmanuel, God with us. It was a temporary situation. Or was it? In Jesus, God was with us. Yes, he lived with us. He moved among us. He taught us. He visited us. But you know that he's not physically with us today. 33 years or so he spent dwelling with us, which is as much as to say with our spiritual ancestors, the disciples of his day. But what about now? You know, is God with us now? Is he still Emmanuel to us today at this time? And in this place, well, yes, he is. When he departed to heaven, Jesus promised always to be with us, even to the end of the age. Well, how does that happen? How has he been good to his word? Well, just this. He has sent his spirit to us who dwells in us. We are, Paul writes, you remember this from our time in Corinthians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in our hearts, Paul tells the Ephesians. Salvation itself is defined, indeed, in these very terms, isn't it? To have God's presence is to have life. But the sad fate of those who will not believe is that they will forever be shut out from the presence of God. The history of salvation itself can be described in these very terms. At creation... Think about it. Before sin entered the world, they were present with God and God present with them. But that presence was lost 
on account of sin. A breach was made, a separation, a gap. But that presence would be restored, wouldn't it? In Christ. What Christ does is essentially this. Restores God's presence with us. Restores us in God's presence to all who believe in Him and who look to Him and who long for more and more of His presence and can hardly wait until they enjoy it the most gloriously forever in the new heavens and the new earth. They love the prospect laid before them of, of being presented before God's glorious presence without fault and with great joy. But, and this is the point this morning, we have God's presence now. Christians, you know this by experience, don't you? And, 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 when, you experience, and when your experience fails you, as it sometimes does, because our subjective feelings are not always in line with objective reality. <laughs> There's an understatement are often not in touch with objective reality. We know this by faith, by God's promise. Even if we don't feel it, we know it because Jesus has said it and therefore it is true. I am with you. He's with us in a way that he is simply not with unbelievers. They're not that they particularly care one, one way or another. You know, unbelievers don't really want God to be present with them, do they? I mean, not really. They don't think it a great thing. They're not moved this season of the year uh, with the thought of God's presence with them. This season doesn't make the, the difference for them, cause to rise in them any sort of joy about God with them, about Emmanuel. They long for no such thing. They never ask God to come near to them. Not the true God anyway. Not the true triune God of Scripture. The fact is they rather he wouldn't. Imagine a person who had no intention of repenting of his sin or hers, of, of giving themselves over completely to Christ, desiring that God even remotely, the, the God even remotely resembling the God of Scripture, the one in the Bible, draw close to them. Oh, they might like the idea of keeping God around, you know, a God of some sort around, like a person enjoys being surrounded by people who will serve their purposes wait on their whims, cater their, to their desires. A, a cosmic butler, you know, may be attractive, but not a holy, just God whose eye is too pure even to look on iniquity. No thanks. God bless America, but stay out of my business. Stay out of my tax returns. <laughs> Stay out of my life and its details. God at our beck and call, you know. 
but not too close for comfort. God, to serve me, but not to change me, not to challenge me, not to transform me. Well, not this, not thus for you, dear flock. Through faith in Christ, you love to be close to God. I know that you do. You love to be close to Him. You love the fact that He's close to you, knowing that your eternal happiness rests on this, and this alone, really, right? That God be present with you, and you be present with Him. You crave more of it, not less. And knowing that your temporal welfare your life right now, and your future rests on God's presence with you. Whatever that future holds, you are glad of it and think it a very great thing. Whatever it may require of you. Whatever it may require of you. That God is with you. Maybe you're beginning to see why I think this passage is so perfect, a bridge between Christmas and, and New Year. Christmas and its conviction that Christ has made himself present with us, that he is at perfect companionship with us is the, is the right way to finish one year and start another, isn't it? As we step across the threshold, the future before us is all unknown, isn't it? It's all dark to us. It's all veiled to us veiled to our sight and that's you know, Debbie and I were just talking about this the other day it's a little frightening it is be truthful it's a little frightening what might be coming to us in the year ahead who knows what we're going to face who knows what we're going to undergo as a congregation what pains, what trials may lie behind that veil. Maybe hang right behind it. All is unknown to us, but this much is certain. We will not face it alone. I am with you, says Jesus. I am with you always. He says it to all who trust in him and follow him. I am with you. This year, this promise and this reality are particularly precious, aren't they? This particular year, <laughs> this promise is really, really precious. Haven't we just come through a pretty lonely year? Oh, you're marked by loneliness. That is, by separation, by distance. Literally. <laughs> Social distance, face masks have, have, have shut us off from one another. Measures imposed for the sake of containing the spread of disease have created inadvertently terrible loneliness and isolation. Isn't it good to know that as one contemporary author puts it, the heart of Christ not only heals our rejection with his embrace and not only corrects our sense of his harshness with his gentleness, but also heals our aloneness with his sheer 
companionship. This is because in Jesus Christ we have a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. Isn't that marvelous? He heals our aloneness with his sheer companionship. A friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse to be present with you. Dear brothers and sisters, you have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is an intimate, deep friend, not distance and distanced and and masked. In a few moments, we're going to enjoy a meal with him. But he also commands us to continue to find his presence, ourselves in his presence. And as we do, he draws nearer. He comes right through the, the door of our heart, he says, and he comes to our table and he, he sits with us and eats with us and communes with us all the week long. This is Jesus' own promise, but you know, as with so many of God's precious promises, we must also take possession of it, mustn't we? God's presence with you is his promise to you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, he says. But he also commands you to find yourself in his presence. Draw near to God, the Bible says. That's James, the brother of Jesus, writing. Draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. There's a responsibility, you see, in all of this. It's a responsibility on your part and on on mine. God is present with us, but we must practice that presence. And this is what I want to commend to you for the coming year. Finally come to to the, uh, I guess, the application of all of this for us for this year, that you practice, and I, the presence of God. And so come to know it and to experience it and to enter into it more deeply, more fervently, more feelingly, so that you will be transformed more and more by being in the presence of God. And so that if the Lord gives it to us, if the Lord gives us a whole year and we get to to be in this sanctuary a year from now as we were together a year ago, that when we gather in this place on this Sunday in 2022, that it will find us more faithful, more obedient, more confident than we are today about our salvation. The idea of practicing the presence of God is is nothing new, it's nothing novel. I'm not presenting something to you that's brand new. This is as old as the Bible itself. This is what the psalmist was doing when he wrote these words, basking in the presence of God. Some of my own personal favorites, almost all of you I think have heard me read them to you at one time. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there in the grave. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I awake and I am still with Christians have followed that psalmist example for centuries since, and we'll do well to do the same. You may remember, well, you may not remember, the name Nicholas Hermann of Lorraine. But you may remember his monk's name, Brother Lawrence. He was born in 1610. He was the son of a peasant. He was converted to Christ at 18 years of age. He became a soldier. He was uh, wounded in battle, and he was lame for the rest of his life. At the age of 40, he entered the monastery as a lay brother and was put to work in the kitchen. There in the kitchen work, he spent the remaining 40 years of his life. The sheer beauty and quality of his Christian life <clears throat> brought many through the years to seek his guidance. One of these set down an account of four conversations he had with Brother Lawrence in 1666 and 1667, and this was later published under the title, The Practice of the Presence of God. This was a principle of Brother Lawrence's life, and there's something very charming and very encouraging about being uh, taught a lesson from a man who did nothing more sensational than to walk with God about a monastery kitchen <laughs> for 40 years. In one memorable passage, Brother Lawrence describes his life in these terms. I make it my business only to persevere in his holy presence, wherein I keep myself by a simple attention and a general fond regard to God which I may call an actual presence of God, or to speak better, an habitual, silent, and secret conversation of the soul with God, which often causes me joys and raptures inwardly, and sometimes also outwardly. In short, I am assured beyond all doubt that my soul has been with God these 30 years. What was that conversation like between Brother Lawrence and the Almighty? Well, maybe you get some idea from what he says here. I consider myself as the most wretched of men, full of sores 
and corruption who has committed all sorts of crimes against his king. Touched with a sensible regret, I confess to him all my wickedness. I ask his forgiveness. I abandon myself in his hands that he may do what he pleases with me. This king full of mercy and goodness, very far from chastising me, embraces me with his love, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the key of his treasures. He converses and delights himself with me incessantly in a thousand and a thousand ways and treats me in all respects as his favorite. It is thus I consider myself from time to time to be in his holy presence. You see what he's doing, don't you? He is practicing the presence of God. The presence of God, he wrote, the presence of God, a subject which, in my opinion, contains the whole spiritual life. Were I a preacher, humble Lawrence writes, I should above all other things preach the practice of the presence of God. We cannot escape the dangers which abound in life without the actual and continual help of God. Let us then pray to him for it continually. How can we pray to him without being with him? And how can we be with him but in thinking of him often? And how can we often think of him but by a holy habit which we should form of it? Again, I say this is what I want for you, dear flock, and it's what I want for me. That we should develop a holy habit of finding ourselves in the presence of God, but that's not going to happen by accident. It will take some discipline, won't it, on our part. You heard James. You heard him loud and clear. Draw near to the Lord. There's a command in that. There's a summons. Which will mean some determination on your part, won't it? Deliberate determination. Where? How, how, how are you going to draw near to God? Well, how do you get close to anybody? Well, you know how it is. You spend time with them, right? In their presence, being with them, talking to them, listening to them. You know of what I speak. And so the same goes for God. Time spent speaking to him. That's prayer. Often, always, in fact, as Paul says it, unceasing prayer. Yes, during regular times set apart for prayer, meals, beginning of the day, end of the day, whenever it is that you set those times apart, but also throughout the day. You know, praying to the Lord while you're driving down the road. Praying to God as you're walking the dog. Praying to God as you're working on your project 
Praying to God when you lie down. Praying to God when you get up. And then, what's the other side? Listening. Hmm? Listening to God. Which means listening to Him in His Word. That's where He speaks to you. Which means that you're actually going to have to read it. Pick up the Word and read it. And listen to it. I had a friend who pointed this out to me many years ago that forever uh, it was. Maybe that's an exaggerated use of the word, but God's people heard God's word. How? By its reading. They listened to it being read aloud. Praise God that we have at our disposal umpteen number of, of uh, apps on our phones and, and, and devices and all that on which you can listen to God's word. As you drive down the road, as you do your chores, whatever, just listening to it. His love letters to you, his instructions to you, his rebukes to you, his encouragements to you, his promises to you. He's ready to talk to you. But you've got to take time to listen. And then... Through it all, living with a mind intent on thinking often about him. Just think about God. Meditate. That's what the psalmist did. Meditating on God all the day long. There's a certain mind that you can develop. You may choose, of course, to uh, step out of your door in the morning every day without hardly a happy thought but only of complaints and even fears you know what you what you're going to face at work what's going to happen when you get there what, what's going to happen what, uh, will you get that deal at the store or not will they all be sold out you know is my car going to get me where i need it you you can worry about a thousand and one things starting off from the beginning of the day the errands that you have to accomplish that day you may fill your leisure hours as well with with stuff like television and insipid entertainment or you can watch the, uh, the doomsayers and leave uh, uh, CNN and Fox and all that garbage on all day long. If you like, you can do that. You can fill your day with angry, doomsaying talk shows. Or, or you may step out of your door in the morning, your first thought being, praise be to you, O oh God. Look at the beautiful creation. God, look at the attributes that you have revealed of yourself to me in, this, in the leaf that's on my porch and in the tree that's in the yard and in, 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 the, in the field that I'm driving by right now. Or, or the warmth of the sunshine on your face or the sound of the birds in the air, the sight of the sun or even the rain. Yes, you can wake up on a gray, rainy day and say, praise be to you, oh God, you water the earth. You feed the crops. And so you feed me. You send the rain on the just and on the unjust alike. What a generous God you are. You may fill your life with complaining and hatred. You may drive down the road complaining about every other driver on the road being an idiot. Or you may make your way along thanking the Lord for every intersection you cross safely. 
and the prayer for the other driver instead of a curse. You may spend the day thanking the Lord for every little good gift and giving Him every, every care that you have or ungratefully worrying as though everything in the end depends on me. It's your choice. How do you want to live the next year? See, there's a fundamental way to think and therefore a fundamental way to live. The Lord is with you. Will you open your hearts and hear Him tell you this? I am with you always. That's Jesus. Now you be with Him. Brother Lawrence looked back and said that after a life of habitual, silent, and secret conversation of the soul with God, that he was assured beyond all doubt that my soul has been with God these 30 years. May we be able to say the same thing a year from now, that after 365 days of habitual, silent, and secret conversation of the soul with God, that we are assured beyond all doubt that our souls have been with God in 2021. Amen.